Christmas time is over. It's time for New Year's resolutions. The gyms will be fucking packed. Here we go. Here we go. Episode 59. Rescue Swimmer Mindset. Episode 59. I'm your host, Vince. We have a very good episode today. I loved it because we've been talking this one up for a while. And you know when we talk them up? That's usually because there's something good at the end of the line. Today, we had a conversation with the one, the only, the man who was once a Coast Guard helicopter rescue swimmer, but is now converted into an Air Force pararescue jumper. Yes, we finally have him on the podcast. We're going to talk to him today about his journey, about the transition between rescue swimmer life, PJ life. What was harder? That's a real question we wanted answers to. So we went down that rabbit hole. That's our that's our guest today. So before we do that, let's talk about a little bit what you can do to help out the rescue swimmer mindset keep through this next year as we we grow together as a community. What you can do is you can leave a rating and a review on the Apple Podcast. It takes two seconds, literally. Pause it right now. Pause. Go over there. Say five stars, always five stars, even if you hate it. If you hate my voice, just give it five stars and be like, I hate this guy's voice. Leave a review. Say you love my voice. That That's going to help us grow and just keep going so we can expand this thing and, and keep bringing you great guests because, you know, the more listeners and the more good reviews, that means more guests want to come on and then we can have eventually Jocko willing on the podcast. And that's what we're all dreaming about. That's the goal. Just to get Jocko on the Rescue Swimmer Mindset podcast. So please leave a rating and a review. Uh, what are we doing as far as our community goes? We are coming out, Cody and I, for a very first joint program called the Perfect Form Masterclass. That's going to be a live class. So signups are already uh, filling up. We're going to try to minimize how many we can actually have on the masterclass. So if we need to do two classes, we'll do two classes. But for now, it's getting full, but you have, uh, you have some slots. So... Perfect form masterclass go on the rescue swimmer mindset.com. And what that is, it's going to be us breaking down in excruciatingly detailed form with pictures, videos, and explanations by us as you know, elite military operators, how to swim efficiently. So we're going to break down how your hand enters the water, how your elbow should be, how your body position should be, the tube as you as we call it in swimming where you're trying to keep your body in a line in a tube as you cut through the water so we're gonna go over freestyle stroke on the surface but we're also gonna really dive into the military type swimming which includes fins how to fin properly on the surface and underwater so breaking down the form for all you guys that are trying to improve your swim times and your swim performance because the reality is you You can only have so much grittiness when it comes to swimming. It's not about your mental drive as much as it is your efficiency. Efficacity? Is that a word? It's a word in French. Efficacité. Ton efficacité sous l'eau. So, um, yeah. Basically, we're going to teach you how to be truly efficient. And that way, you can crush it in any type of elite military program. So, that way, you can also interact with us and ask us questions because it's going to be live. We're going to be there as long as you want. We'll ask, we'll answer rescue swimmer questions. We'll answer swimming questions, surface question, and underwater proficiency questions. So it's going to be a detailed class, three hours. Check that out, rescueswimmermindset.com. And that's the perfect form masterclass coming out at the end of January. So sign up now as we fill up or else you will not be uh, in the live course. Lastly, Wildertainment. Uh, I think I'm going to do the final cutoff of the Wildertainment show that's 
going to be also hosted on the Rescue Storm Mindset. I'm only going to keep it to 10 episodes. After 10 episodes, I'm going to only have Wildertainment episodes on the Wildertainment channel. So please do subscribe. Do the same thing. Apple Podcasts, Wildertainment. So Wilderness Entertainment, Wilder. We've had some great guests. We talked about Leave No Trace. So the environmental impact of being in the outdoors and how as a recreationalist, you can really be a good outdoorsman to educate others and things that you may or may not have known that you've been doing to, you know, just just preserve the environment for years to come. That's something we've talked about with a Knowles Master Educator recently. We've had a lot of survival stories, helicopter crash. We're going to have a plane crash coming up soon. Uh, talking about the survival process of that. That was in Washington. Pretty gnarly story. We had somebody, some jamoke, as we like to say, that took a, a little skiff and cruised from <laughs> from the coast of Washington all the way to Alaska. So that was another pretty gnarly story. And uh, canoe races, we're going to have some more mountaineer survival stories and a lot of rock climbers. Just those athletic, gritty folks. So that's enough with that. Wildertainment Podcast, perfect form, program, that's going to be on the RescueStormMindset.com and rate and review this podcast. Thank you very much. Without further ado, the rescue swimmer turned PJ Ty Gansel. All right, Ty Gansel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, man. We've heard about you for quite a long time, and I think starting all the way back to when we were even in rescue swimmer school, Cody and I. We always heard about this like legendary swimmer that went the PJ route and just crushed it. Um, and since then, with different various guests, actually Brad Pigage, and we actually talked with some some PJs. We went on the BAPJ podcast, and I oh, cool. believe that they were talking about you as well and how well you performed going through that whole PJ pipeline. So it's great to finally have you on the show to really dive into your brain after talking about you for so long. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, good to be on. Great. So why don't we start with your swimmer career and then we'll transition into your current career as an Air Force PJ. When were you a swimmer? Basically, when did you graduate swimmer school? Yeah, basically started swimmer school in 2010 and then I got out roughly August uh, 2013 and then started the PJ pipeline January 2014. Oh, wow. So you basically didn't even... Did you do the bare minimum of a rescue swimmer tour before going PJ or did you transition before you were even completed? Yeah, I was, uh, so I joined the Coast Guard January, 2008 and then, uh, finished my six year commitment pretty much. And I just went TDY, you know, uh, the advanced, uh, rescue swimmer school, met some PJs and pretty much that's how that ball got, got rolling. Found out about Alaska Air National Guard and the uh, 212th Rescue Squadron there. And gosh, you know, they they just hook, line, and sinker, grabbed me, and uh, that was that, you know. What do you mean by, like, what attracted you to the Air Force PJs in Advanced Rescue Swimmer School? Uh, you know, they had stories. It was just different, you know, doing the, you know, the swimmer gig. Um, it's all Civil SAR, and then I know the PJs talking to them, up in Alaska, they do uh, civil search and rescue all the time as well. And then, you know, I've always kind of wondered what the grass is like uh, doing like combat deployments and everything like that. So, I don't know, just spiked my interest and uh, everything that they do, of course, you know, jump and dive in, um, et cetera. And then honestly, that's pretty much all it took. I was just, I was just ready for, ready for a change, you know. That's, that's pretty cool. So which swimmer number were you? 
797. 797, right on. So yeah, like almost a hundred before us. That's really cool. So you you completed your your tour as a swimmer, and where did you serve for that that one tour? Yeah, I was in uh, Astoria, Oregon, at the sixty oh, unit there. That's the yeah, dream good station, spot. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it was a good spot. <laughs> you just got that out, out of A school, huh? Did you graduate top of the class? Because I assume that's a top pick, right? Uh, I did. I ended up uh, getting the honor grad, um, nice. and then just got that pick. It was pretty pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Did you get some pretty good cases in Astoria then? Um, I did, you know, I had a, honestly a great, it was I mean, a small shop. It's only eight guys and most of them were, were older guys. And, you know, they're just like, you want to stand duty as much as you want. Here you go. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get missions or SAR cases unless you stand duty. So I was uh, pretty fortunate, um, to get a few in that three years, three years there, you know, what is the typical kind of search and rescue in Astoria? What are the cases that you guys mostly deal with? I mean, you do your standard, uh, you know, offshore medevacs or sailing vessels uh, in distress. Um, but mostly it was, uh, you did like inland search and rescue. So like loggers, people on the coastal trails in the mountains there. And then every once in a while you do something in the Cascades, like someone gets a predicament and there's no other assets that can go get them. So they, you know, the Coast Guard gets the call. What is the process of like search and rescue when you're dealing with a hiker? Because the visibility, like in the trees, especially in those, you know, those big tree lines and those mountains, oh, yeah. how do you locate them? What's what's the the system in place for that? Uh, I mean, we do like contour searches. You know, where you start say at the top of a mountain, you just kind of go around and down until you find something. And usually, the the people we do find were. You know, headlamps or like a beacon in the middle of the night or some sort of strobe light or in the daytime if just waving like a bright colored piece of clothing, a little bit more difficult, but you can spot them pretty easily that way. So what, they, they just try to find a clearing and make themselves most visible? Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Because, I, yeah, I, I was always a fan, like growing up to those survivor type movies. And, you know, one oh, yeah. one movie I, I always remembered was, I think, The Edge. Remember that one with like Anthony oh, Hopkins and like, yeah, the Kodiak bear? Yeah. And yeah, like same thing that I think they're at one point they could have been seen, but they were just in, in those trees. And even if you're out in a clearing, somebody's really kind of have to have a pretty pinned oh, down yeah. location as to where you are. Cause you know, having operated search and rescue, you know, you're trying to look as much as you can, but your eye doesn't really pick up that much, especially like oh. you, you have to be pretty low to, to see anything. And the lower you are, the, well, then at that point you're, you're not covering as much of a pattern. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's taxing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Did you so did you get any cool cases in for hikers and recreationalists out there? Uh yeah, quite a, quite a bit. My uh my first uh uh search and rescue case was a uh a couple teenagers on the Columbia River Gorge, just free climbing, scrambling on that third, fourth class terrain, you know, that sketchy chassis stuff. And mm -hmm. uh his buddy ended up uh slipping falling like a hundred feet and then, uh, landed in a, a little cliffed out section with a bunch of snags and some trees that, you know, hang over the cliff there. That happened kind of like in the, the end of the day and then into night. And then the volunteer, you know, high angle teams couldn't get to them. So they ended up uh, calling the, the coast guard and that was like July, 2011. So we ended up doing like a vertical surface hoisting at night and, uh, wow. yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good one. <laughs> that was one of your first cases. That was my first case. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a pretty great one. Um, 
What what are the high angle teams qualified to do? Are are they also accessing via air? No, they aren't. Uh, and specifically that team that was doing it, um, they just you know go by ground and try to hike up to the top to probably uh, repel, secure the victim, then um, get them out via rope systems, or they try to climb uh, to the to the victim and get them out that way and do a lower from there. But the terrain was just so. It's pretty difficult for them, so they just couldn't do it. And it was nighttime, so they opted. Sometimes a helicopter is the safest way to do things sometimes. Not just that. It's, like, so hard. If I mean, you know as a rock climber yourself, like, if you're trying to pin somebody down that's below you on a cliff face, I mean, you're yeah. not – you're bare, You're maybe you'll see their headlamps, but doubtful because, yeah. you know, the, the way the cliff is, they might be under a bulge. You're not going to see them. I actually remember I, I yeah. was doing a little climbing in Australia, and – we got caught in one of the worst windstorms I've ever experienced just being out and about yeah. in, in civilian life yeah. anywhere, like on a beach anywhere in my life. I've never felt a wind like that, but I was on like a, I think it was like a 15 pitch climb. Um, and I'm up there and Gosh. this is just, this just shows like the, the community of rock climbers and especially in Australia and the, this is the blue mountains area. I thought it was so kind of them. This one friend who was in like the camp community drove out the 45 minutes to this multi-pitch area where we were so wow. it's like big cliff he hiked out i believe 40 minutes to the top threw a rope but he described throwing the rope like down to try to start repelling and i guess try to aid us right because he knew what climb we were on at least right so he knew where yeah like above where he was because he'd done the climb so he throws the rope but the rope instead of going down just goes straight up Side. in the air and it's just <laughs> staying there like it's just in the wind staying and he's Those like well really this strong is, winds <laughs> yeah and he's like i'm not doing this so like he went back he's like i'll try again in the morning and he described being in his van within like the seclusion of these trees in a forest his van was rocking back and forth. That's within the shelter of the trees. So like, it that's was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I had, some, I had some wind PTSD, um, but that just goes again to show like he never saw us, right? So, um, and he knew exactly where we were. But in that case, for that low angle team, I would assume, yeah, it's almost that. That's a pretty hard mission to complete. That said, like, who does the high angle team work for? Is that park services or? No, they're. I think the ones that we dealt with were just a. Uh, volunteers that come out of whatever county uh in Oregon and they just you know they usually get the call and then they all have to gather up and then drive out so it's usually a de delayed response because they're just volunteers you know so yeah no no like dedicated I get paid to do this every day you know they're just volunteers that's God's work in my opinion same yeah yeah <laughs> same type of people that put up rock climbs and stuff just doing it for yep. the kindness you know and giving back that's really incredible yeah why don't we get, let's get back into your story uh so how old are you when you decide you're you're gonna go to the pj pipeline i think i was 25 years old just did my third ahars course or advanced rescue swimmer course and then there was more pjs there talked to him even more and then uh i was like gosh i you know i just felt just, you know, the, the need to do more, uh, I just felt in my, in my opinion, just felt like stagnant where I was. I wanted to learn and do more and see if the grass was greener. And, you know, I ended up trying out for the 212th rescue squadron in Alaska and, uh, fortunately got a, got a slot. And then, gosh, I was out of the, 
that was in May of 2013 and I got out August of 2013. And um, so pretty quick turnaround. <laughs> For sure. Well, first of all, let's break down a couple of things you said. You went to the advanced helicopter risk swimmer school three times within what, like that three years of service. That's pretty cool. Like most swimmers yeah. have not gone that often. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. you were there, right? The school is there. <laughs> yeah. So they're like, yeah, just go ahead. <laughs> yeah. There's like a slot. There's a slot available. So they just be like, anyone from the shop want to go? And I mean, I had a, my first time, the, the weather wasn't too bad. And then my second time, uh, that's when they're like, Hey, a slot's available. And the weather was, was kicking. It was like 20, 25 foot seas, like hailing inside of the helicopter. So it was, it was a really cool week. It was a, one of those humbling weeks. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Do you get, you get rocked a little bit? Is that oh yeah. 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 <laughs> a little yard sale of equipment. That's cool. Okay. So, and then, so you're 25 and then you said you went to this, this Alaska squadron. How does that operate? I, I thought like all the PJs had to go through this specific, I don't even know where the, the PJ pipeline is. Yeah. How does that work? You say you went to a squadron. So usually uh, the Air National Guard or um, Air Reserve, those squadrons are all like half part-timers, half full-timers. So half active duty, half part-timers. And they have their own process where they kind of vet who they want to hire uh, in a pretty much a, just a tryout. You just go out and it's just like a mini selection. They just, uh, you just do your standard PT test at the beginning. And then right after the PT test, they just run you through a whole, like, I don't know, eight to 12 hours of just events, just really just kicking your butt and, uh, doing different, uh, events to see how well you handle stress. It's, I mean, it's just like any selection program. They just consolidate it. Uh, into a day really. And then uh, they do like a hiring process at the end. So, you know, you're wearing a suit and tie and then you just have a bunch of PJs, uh, pararescuemen and combat rescue officers just sitting around a table asking you questions like, why should we hire you? And uh, that was probably the hardest part, you know, <laughs> Yeah, what's <laughs> trying the to convince to them. You just hope that uh, you, they liked your answers and they obviously look at your performance, uh, see if you're just did everything with the smile on your face and, you know, stuff like that. But that's, that's pretty much how, uh, the trial I went to worked. And I, I'm pretty sure it's similar across, uh, the different PJ air guard units. Interesting. So yeah. once you passed your interview, then what? Um, so they let me know about a month after, yes, we'd like to hire you. Um, there's a couple guys in front of you, so you may have to wait a little bit. So I ended up uh, starting the process to uh, um, get out of the Coast Guard. My enlistment was up towards the end of the year anyway. I mean, everyone at, at Astoria was uh, super pumped and helpful. You know, they're, they're all about that type of stuff anyway. So, uh, yeah, the, the command there just like pushed my paperwork and just sent me packing with a smile on their face. They're pretty excited. And then uh, I had to do the whole in-processing MEPS uh, deal with uh, – the uh, Air National Guard. So that was, you know, that's just one of those mind mind numbing processes. But uh, once I got it going, uh, I was literally the first time I, for the first day of selection and uh, pararescue in doc course was the first day I wore a Air Force uniform. So that was pretty funny as well. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So you go through, that's funny. First of all, why do you have to go through MEPS again? Because you're already in the military. And... Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if it's to cover their own tracks, but they still have to do. Uh, actually, 
you have to do a couple extra things for like their flight physical, like chest x-rays and a bunch of other stuff. That's, it's just one of those things that you just have to pay the bills, you know? Yeah. So one of the fun things I recall, uh, going through the, the medical process of qualifying for a swimmer. And I, I don't know if you had to go through this cause I, I've heard some swimmers had not had to do this, but when I was in my airman program in Hawaii, you know, you got to go through your final checks before your flight ready before they even send you to swimmer school and one of yep. the things they have you do is they have you read like an article or something it's like a, a paragraph from a journal and you start reading it and the doc I, at least my doctor didn't really give me a briefing as to what was going to happen he's like all right no matter what happens if there's an interruption you just start over and reread the paragraph so you're like actively oh, reading gosh. this paragraph. So say it's the like it's I pledge allegiance say it's I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. And then the doctor will go, What's that? He'll like super aggressively go, What's that? And you go, I don't know what's happening. And you start again. <laughs> I pledge allegiance to the flag of the Huh? Like and it like especially if you slightly pause or stutter, he'll be like, do it again. <laughs> you have to just My do it God. again. I, I, I don't think <laughs> sounds anyone... like he was messing with you. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, maybe it's because uh, I was Canadian. And he knew. It. He's like, let's see how this Frenchie can handle like communications in a helicopter, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that just being a, an entertaining process because I was smirking every time he would yell at me. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So you're in your Air Force uniform now, and where are you now? Are you, you now you're at the pipeline or how does this operate you're talking about when i started training yeah 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 pretty much uh when you start the pararescue pipeline it's a little different now uh, most programs change throughout the years but uh i started in the pararescue development course it's kind of like a mini it's like an airman program but two weeks okay. and uh you just the different thing there is uh it's pretty much the same as the airman program except you start with like 130 dudes, give or take 10 or so. Um, but it's a, it's a lot of people and you're all, you're all together. You're all in it. And then that was probably, that was probably the, the biggest difference between the selection programs was like the mass amount of people that you have to interact with and you have, you have to deal with them and being prior service, they usually put all the prior service guys like in charge, like the non-commissioned officer in charge or something like that. So you have to not only get through the training yourself and do well, you have to manage all these people and kind of, it's kind of a goat rope a little bit. <laughs> what was your approach in leadership in that position? Uh, uh, sounds ridiculous, but in that point of time, just uh, try to just lead by example. And uh, if you're doing everything right and you're trying, you're trying to crush it pretty much, pretty much everyone follows whoever does that. So at that point in time, that's, that's all I could do. Cause I'm still trying to, you know, do the selection course as well. <laughs> so let's just backtrack. Cause I, I again, I, I think the, the process continuously changes and I'm curious as to how you ended up in that position. So you went through maps, eventually they gave you a uniform, but you skip over air force boot camp. Is that correct? Yes. That's correct. cool. And, and then what they ship you straight to this two week other selection process slash like airman program and where was this that was in uh lackland air force base in uh san antonio texas oh right on so you, you finish your maps and then basically you, you know you finish whatever process you had and they just shipped you there with your uniform yes 
That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right on. Yeah. All right. So then, so you ship there, and then you successfully complete your two week process. Would you say that was pretty challenging in itself? Uh, I mean, the the standards weren't horrendous, but just like any selection process, the the people who don't make it through that process are the ones who typically are fearing the next event. They're like always fearing failure. So they either talk themselves out of it. So say they did marginal on a, say on a Thursday, Friday, they're already that entire night when they go to sleep, they're just, this is pretty standard. They would just fear the next day's events. So they had already quit in their mind before really the next day even happened, you know, before they even woke up. So they already had it in their mind that they weren't going to do it. And I'd say that was the majority of people who didn't make it. And then uh, after that two week process, that little mini airman program, um, I'd say we finished with uh, 80 dudes total from like 130. So that's pretty much the number we started with for pararescue NDOC, which was another nine weeks after that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Like in, in all those selection processes, there's always those individuals that are fully physically capable, right? They're crushing oh, it. Yeah. And everyone yeah. that is in their leadership and, and through their selection process is like, this guy is a stud. He's going to fly through the training. And then within a yep. couple days of attending whatever actual, the, the hardcore of the, the nitty gritty selection process, I think, yeah, they just get in their head too much of the longevity of it. And I maybe just the pressure of it, right? Not just looking at each event as like its own little challenge. They're looking at, they're thinking about the next event and therefore the event they're currently doing, they kind of botch. Oh, yeah. 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 I don't know, like, having been through two of those programs, what would you tell those individuals if they're trying to go again? Like what, what kind of recommendation would you give them to, to try to get out of their head? I mean, just, just focus on each individual event as it comes, you know, there's different approaches to that. Some guys would be like, uh, just make it to breakfast and then make it to lunch, make it to the end of the day, you know, just pretty much meal to meal. Um, yeah, just whatever you're going to do, no matter what you do, it's going to, it's going to be awful, you know? Um, so if you just accept that and know that however you want to do it, like, Hey, I'm just, I'm getting paid to work out right now. Uh, 24 seven, that's one way of looking at it, but you just focus on each event and you don't care what's going to happen to you. Then really you're, you'll be fine. Like the, the physical standards are always a buildup from week one through week nine. So it's not, it's not horrendous what you do day the first week, you know, they build you up like each of your, your pushups go up week to week for your tests. Same with pull-ups underwaters, uh, lessen the, the time for your underwaters. So nothing is impossible. You just have to accept the groundhog's day of each day is going to be the same more or less. And just do each individual event one at a time, you know, what would you say is the similar similarities and the differences through this buildup process of the instructors of swimmer school and PJ pipeline? The buildup as in what, what would you say? Well, I'm I'm curious as to what like the leadership. Did you did you notice a lot of similarities as to how the instructors operated through swimmer school versus P, the PJs? Yeah, I'd say the instruction was extremely similar. Um, Obviously two kind of different jobs, but 
really a similar mindset. Um, I'd say the first two months of swimmer school were exactly like pararescue and dock. Just underwaters where they're not terrible, but you just have to know when to calm yourself, especially when an instructor is harassing you or, you know, swimmer school, they're holding on to you and you just got to relax and just do the tasks that you're told to do and you're going to be all right. It's the same with uh, uh, pararescue and dock, like you do thing called buddy breathing. You have to share a snorkel with you and your buddy all while you're just getting your shirt ripped off and everything like that. People are plugging your snorkel, which doesn't sound that hard, but um, could it can be difficult. They're going to make you, I feel like I did pretty well in uh, pararescue indoc, and I honestly did, popped on my first underwater the first time ever um, on one buddy breathing section with my buddies with the California team right now. Um, they just, they just made it like if they know you're crushing it, they're going to see how you accept failure, how you handle a failure for the rest of the day. So it doesn't matter if you're the strongest dude. And that's the thing too. Like we'll have guys that will go until they pass out underwater, but you only get two shallow water blackouts before you, they get rid of you. So you have to put away all these things into that whole, like I need to last as well as perform. So that was, it was pretty funny. It was a good experience. So mm -hmm. there's a strategy to maybe potentially not pushing yourself to blacking out. It's like, I'm, I should take the, the tap out or I guess the, the popping. So popping for everyone listening is when you resurface instead of completing the evolution, is that kind of a potential strategy? If, if you're pushing your limits to the end, Maybe just pop yeah. around. I don't recommend popping at all. Um, <laughs> that's that's never been a part of my mindset. Um, but it was it was a task that seemed so impossible at the moment. Like uh, my buddy's never popped on an underwater before either, and they just did it. And whenever I run the tryouts here in Alaska for the two twelfth rescue squadron, we will do it. We'll even though you never pop, we're gonna make sure that you do pop. You know, we'll do some sort of task where either either guys will do they'll black out under the water, we'll pull them out. You know, they have that whole euphoric look in their face, you know, blue in the lips. So we'll we'll make everyone do that. It's just how you how how do you bounce back from that? Are you gonna be fearful from then on? Or are you gonna go ahead and crush and execute whatever task you got from then on out? And I I think that's actually a good thing to an instructor, like if you're an instructor, it's a good thing to push on, say your candidate is to push them to failure, actually let, see how they handle failure and bounce back hmm. in my own opinion. And how does that translate to the mission at hand? The fact that they fail and, and bounce back. I think it's, I think it's great because, uh, I mean, you as a, as a climber know that, um, sometimes you need a bail or you take a whiffer on, a ice climbing or rock climbing on your track gear, you, you don't want to fall, but sometimes you just, sometimes things happen. Like, are you going to keep on climbing or you never going to climb again? You know, it's kind of one of those uh, situations. That's true. A lot of people have like a scare when they perform those recreational activities and then they either never do it again, or it takes them forever mm -hmm. to recover and get back to the mental like their mental capacity that they had before that fall or that slightly traumatic event. So yeah. And I, I'd say probably the, the training of that and like my prior training has potentially helped with, with that kind of mindset for sure. Now, how did you yeah. do when it came to having like the fact that you popped that one time? 
Uh, I mean, I definitely didn't pop again after that, or they maybe just didn't allow it or something like that. But, uh, um, I was, I was so angry at myself that I wouldn't accept that again. Um, so I've always heard, uh, throughout my training, like, uh, just, you know, it's a marathon. Don't go a hundred percent every day. My own opinion, I, I hate to save anything for, uh, like an event, whether doing an underwater or doing an overland event, you know, if you're going to do it, you do it. Don't hold back in my opinion. So I, I took that to that pop to heart and, uh, just really just wanted to crush everything after that. And it's, uh, boldest of terms. I'm sure people listening in are like, what, what's the specific drill? What made you pop? So you got to share that. Like what, what happened? What was it specifically? Uh, it's like every, um, they called it black Thursdays. So every black Thursday is, uh, is pretty much the day that's not a groundhog's day. They, you have to put on boots, a uniform, like a buoyancy compensator, like a, like a Triton vest. Um, yep. um, you put on a mass snorkel, the whole, the whole gamut. And then now you're asked to do underwaters like that. Um, buddy breathe like that. Sometimes they, when you're buddy breathing, passing the snorkel, they'll maybe cap you more than normal. So capping is where, well, yeah, you plug the snorkel. It seems. Yeah. 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 And they're only supposed to cap so many times, but uh, they may have capped, uh, more than, you know, the allotted amount, but it's all good. There's nothing wrong with that, honestly. Yeah. Um, so th that's, that's pretty much what happened. And it was a different technique. Like they, uh, I think if you remember from a uh, swimmer school where they instructors would not float, they'd be bricks when your buddy towing them. Oh yeah. It's yeah. kind of one of those like instructors would just lay on top of you. So you, you have to like try to tread to stay above water and breathe and pass the snorkel. Oh. And uh, so they're pretty much keeping you underwater and you have to like fight for the surface and to make sure your buddy's breathing as well. You're not just stealing all the air. So yeah, it's a good little teamwork exercise, but that's, that's, that's the one that got me. Are the ethics of that drill typically one breath per person or you take a couple, pass it? Yeah. You take a breath and sometimes it would be half a breath. You know, you might suck up some water. You, uh, you can't be selfish. You have to make sure your buddy's got a breath and it has to be teamwork. It has to be reciprocal. So he has to be thinking that about you to, so you can last the, I can't remember two minutes, 30 seconds that you have to buddy breathe while getting capped and being brought down to the bottom of the pool. And, you know, it's just one of those things like when your uh, swimmer school instructors holding on to you you take them to the bottom of the pool, they're ripping the mask off your face. Um, you're sucking in water. It's, it's kind of that same principle, you know, it's a pretty cool drill. So is it like one instructor per person doing this, this snorkel drill? Yeah. Yeah. One, wow. one instructor and they usually have fans and they usually just, uh, you know, roll you underwater, um, cap snorkels. You're, you can't let go of the snorkel at all, or you fail. You can't pop. So that popping for a buddy breathing drill is pretty much not breathing off the snorkel and just going to the surface, taking a breath and then yep. going back underwater. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So basically not using the snorkel and, and your mouth resurfacing versus yes. just the snorkel or your top, top of your head. That's really, that's a crazy drill. And do they still do that to this day? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we still do it in Alaska. I'm pretty sure they still do that. And, uh, um, I think it's called assessment and selection is what the air force calls it now. But, uh, 
they definitely do it in pre-dive before you go to combat dive. Um, so, yep, they still do that drill. And there's, I had an instructor at uh, Pararescue Indoc. Uh, his name was Hats, and uh, he's a he's a funny guy, um, but he's real. He's just like, I don't know what your problem is. You just hold on to the snorkel, hold on your buddy, and you just breathe breathe off the snorkel. <laughs> yeah, that's all it is. And he, he's right. If you just do those things, you're gonna be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that's breaking it down. Um, wait. So, what do you mean by holding? Not to get too in the nitty gritty of this drill, but it's yeah, really yeah. captivating. What What do you mean by holding on to your buddy? You You do hold on to the other guy the whole time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you're holding on to the snorkel, then you're holding on to your buddy, and you're just passing the snorkel back and forth. Yeah. So if you you never let go of the snorkel, so if you get ripped away from your buddy, you go. You both have to hold on to the snorkel, whether you're getting like gator rolled put to the bottom, whatever it may be. You just, you don't let go of the snorkel. But both of you sometimes are holding the snorkel. Like even yes. if you're getting gator rolled. Interesting. Yeah. That's a fun Absolutely. drill. That's a really cool yeah, it's, drill. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've heard recently, I think swimmer schools, they finally adopted some, we had somebody talk in on one of our previous episodes about jujitsu and how they've adopted that into the whole swimmer program. And I think now they have basically underwater jujitsu like little matches or whatnot where like two swimmers come together and they have to perform the specific movements that they've been taught to get in or out of different situations. It seems very, it's, it, it seems like a good evolution, um, from what I hear, you know? Um, so I want to get into a little bit, your, your psychology going and surviving and succeeding through these two programs. And I guess one of my, my questions was what was your, why, in succeeding in both of those schools what keeps you driven through the very grueling process i think uh the will to I guess challenge yourself is in its most basic terms is i i really wanted to challenge myself uh i didn't even join the coast guard to do the swimmer program i didn't even know about it honestly um i just joined the coast guard to join the military and travel and then my time as a non-rate in the coast guard i just i was like and nothing seems challenging until I uh, went to uh, Port Angeles, uh, the air station there. And just all it took was a, a couple of a swimmer, the chief there and the, the first class there were just like, you'd make a good swimmer. And I was just like, what's that? And then I just, they showed me what it was. I was like, that's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, I really just wanted to challenge myself and uh, learn how to swim and do all those things. And that's what, that's what it was like for me in the Coast Guard is I really wanted to challenge myself. And then as I got into the job, I was like, man, this job is awesome. It puts you in some extreme uh, positions on uh, some SAR cases. And, uh, and then I started to learn more and more about the military and different jobs. And then pararescue came into mind. And same thing in the pararescue pipeline is, you know, I just wanted to challenge myself, learn more. And I really wanted to do the job. It's very similar. You still do civil SAR and then you also do combat search and rescue augment, uh, other teams, whether they're, you know, Rangers, SEALs, what have you. Um, that just always appealed to me and it was just always kept me like self-motivated to, uh, um, to do that. And I think a lot of it comes down as the, like, the dude next to you. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Like the longer I do this job, I think that's what I would miss the most is like, uh, just the, the guys, you, the like-minded guys you work with. Um, you know, if I 
went out in the civilian world, it's, it's hard to find that, that type of, uh, environment, you know, bunch of pipe hitters, knuckle draggers that you just enjoy being with and that share the same passion as you do, uh, doing a really cool job. Yeah. You, you touched on a couple of things here. And my question is, what is your why when you're really in the suck, right? Like what keeps you kicking when, when you're, you know, kind of on the verge of, of quitting and you, you touched on, it's about the guy next to you. And that's, that's something I've talked about in one of our, we have a, a program called the hold your breath, like a rescue swimmer program. And yeah, I dive into the underwaters and kind of the mental process in one of the chapters. And one of the things I explain is, yeah, think of the guy that's next to you and think it's not, it's not just about you. It's about the fact that that person next to you hasn't quit through this process yet. So don't you dare quit on them. And it seems like that was potentially one of your, your processes of, of not quitting is thinking of the person next to you and the fact that you guys are a team and if one quit, then it's incites the other to quit. So you're not going to do that because yeah. they're not going to do that. Um, yeah. is, would that be fair to say that was kind of one of your motivating driving forces in the suck? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quitting's infectious as, as you know, but, uh, what also is, uh, infectious in a good way is showing that you can beat whatever it is that you're, you're faced with. And I think it all boils down to like a hard civil SAR, um, mission or even in, in combat. You're going to be faced with adversity and it's if you can remain cool, calm and collected in hard situations and show people that you could do these situations and succeed. It's all about the person you're going going out to get. You know, if you can uh, get them out of the situation, I mean, that's that's really all that matters. So if you can think about that while you're doing these hard these hard tasks, whether it be a underwater or a, just the longest ruck with the heaviest load ever, uh, just grueling through that process and doing it well. Um, I mean, that's the mindset to have, like, just think that you're out, the, you're doing that to get someone out of a tight situation. Cause those, those are very real sooner or later in this job, whether it's swimmer or pararescue, you, you will be in a cold, dark and stormy sooner or later. And it's just going to be you and in pararescue. It's probably going to be you and a, a buddy or two, you know, your team, you have to learn to adapt and succeed. For the patient that you're going to get so you would say that would be an additional mindset tool that you would use is thinking of the survivor and the person in distress that you are working so hard to hopefully someday assist yeah i mean that's why that's why you do the job for a rescue swimmer or, or pararescue it's mm. you're not you're not shooting people in the face i mean sometimes some guys get that opportunity but you just have to know going into that job that that's your primary job and just take it serious. And uh, I think that's what separates uh, swimmer and uh, swimmer pararescue from like uh, or other special operations jobs from, you know, the civilian world is we can do those things that other people can't or else anybody could do our job. You know, yeah. you know, parach parachuting, all these things that we do, it's re they're really not hard. But the fact that we do our job is because we can push the the limits training uh what have you have uh, put us in yeah i always like breaking down that mindset uh well first of all it's called the risk storm mindset so i guess that's part of what we should be doing <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's all good it's all it's all uh, the same really yeah, yeah same principle um, but yeah i like the similarities and i think most people that succeed in these any kind of athletic disciplinary uh endeavor is they, they do share those similarities of their their mindset and yeah you you thinking of the survivor down the road I had a similar 
trick. Well, it was like the same, but it was kind of it's kind of embarrassing because I, I think I was young enough where, I, you know, high school wasn't that far away. I think it, it was like three years, you know, after finishing high school that I was in the swimming program. And I, I remember I had like a, a high school crush who, you know, I was too shy at the time to to say anything to or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but going through the swimmer program, I was like, man, if that person was drowning right now. Like, like when it was really hard underwater, I'd be like, man, I can't quit on that person. So like, you know, you, you, you play yeah. those little mind games of like, Hey, there's like somebody that you care about or, or just the life you value. And like that kept me kicking is like, Oh, I can't quit on that person. I can't let that person drown. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at a, at a really, uh, come to God moment on, uh, one mission in Astoria, uh, one of the flight mechs was in uh the cascades um mount rainier to be specific and went hiking and got too close to a, like a uh a chute a steep uh, like snow chute and ended up you know wearing tennis shoes he ended up falling a few hundred feet and ended up in a a steep uh cliffed out section it was on it was like just weekend duty and uh ended up calling in another swimmer and we went out there with ropes uh crampons, what have you. I mean, it was like a 12 hour, 12 hour SAR case. And we knew it was one of our buddies that got put over the radio chatter that went well from the evening straight into 5 a.m. the next morning of uh, repelling, trying to search these, uh, these steep ravines, um, looking for him. We found him and he was in a bad way. And he was, he was in and out of consciousness at the time, joking around, but um, just knowing that you've worked with a uh, him as as your friend, not just for work, but outside of work. Um, that's a extremely uh, motivating. Like I cannot mess this up right now, or else you know none of us are going to get out of here because it was treacherous terrain. And uh, we ended up uh, doing a hasty lower. Uh, the other swimmer uh, ended up climbing down um, to get the uh, the Stokes litter because uh, we're in kind of like overhanging rock. Uh, at the time. So we're getting rocks coming down when they try to lower the litter to us. So he had to climb down, long story short, get the litter back up. Now we had to figure out how to get him down to this, where the, the drainage kind of opened. It was kind of a snow field, like a little steep ravine into a snow field. Um, so we had to figure out how to get him there. And really what it came down to is, uh, doing a body belay of him, the rope clipped to the head of the litter. And then, uh, the other swimmer um, was acting as what you call like a barrel man. So he was clipped to the litter as well, but like maneuvering the litter around uh, rocks, scree fields, various types of terrain down to that snow field. And it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was humbling, but it was like, this is why, this is why you train hard. And this is why you have to stay mentally fit as well. Not just physically fit um, just to stay in the fight. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, I think that was my first uh, mission in Astoria where I was just like, I mean, this is why, this is why we do it, you know? So that's um, insane. So you, yeah. so for anybody listening in and like a body belay, as in the friction of the rope around your, your body and you're lowering this person in a litter off of more or less a cliff or at least a very steep area. Yeah, it was like third and fourth class terrain is pretty much what it was. So it was like that in between steep to uh, chassis rock, um, which sometimes is more difficult. Um, 
because it's not as straightforward as lowering someone off of a cliff, you know? Yeah. Um, but either, either way, it was difficult. I thought it was difficult at night, you know? Jesus. I mean, I'll say like, and were you the person holding this person on this body belay or? Uh, yep. Yep. I, oh. I just, I just opted to, uh, to do that. I was, I was in a good position. I had, my feet were really good, really secure in my position. And then, uh, the other swimmer felt comfortable maneuvering everything around. He had crampons on. So, uh, yeah, ended up, uh, working out. And then of course the, the helicopter was, uh, in a tight spot. They're like uh, nose into the cliff, into this ravine and ended up doing like a, um, just a 200 foot hoist out. So it was, it was awesome by everyone involved. Yeah. That's, that's a very impressive story. And you know, the litter itself is, is heavy and I'm assuming a slight mechanic wasn't light on top of that. And you know, you holding that, just the pressure of that, right? Because it's no longer a mechanical equipment. It's, it's kind of, well, I mean, there's mechanical advantage, but you're holding this person's life literally on a line similar to a flight mechanic yep. except they don't have the helicopter to help so it seems like a big high pressure yeah situation wow yeah hats off to you for for that case that's i never heard of one like that and especially the fact that like what were you were you trained in rope systems because I, I know a lot of swimmers aren't most swimmers aren't trained in any kind of rock climbing rope systems yep. you know well the other swimmer had just done a rock course in uh think Colorado's where he went a uh, TDY just like a month prior to that and then I was just getting in at the time just getting into like doing a bunch of mountaineering I didn't know how to like rock climb too much or ice climb back then doing mountaineering and I had just done a uh an ascent of like Mount Rainier not too long before that so I had you know I had the basic mountaineering knowledge of using rock belays and stuff like that body belays so it's just weird how some of that stuff works out Cool. Let, let's get back into your uh, your selection process a little bit. Cool. But I have one last question. Uh, what was the most challenging part of that selection process for you? How, how about let's let's go and what was the hardest swimmers school part for you, and what was the hardest PJ part for you? Sure. Start with swimmer school. Uh, honestly, got set back. I didn't pass the aviator test. It was like week seven or something like that. I kept going over time. Every time I think you get like 10 minutes or something to do it. That's a parachute test for people listening in. Yeah. yeah the parachute test. And yep. yeah, I honestly, uh, I didn't pass. I went over time, the three tests I did and, uh, instructors were, were awesome and uh, I was fortunate to be set back. So that was, that was the hardest part was, uh, was, that was like my first failure. I did well physically, mentally, everything else, uh, underwaters, no problem. So that's, that was what set me back out of all things. I was like, what the heck? So I got set back to the beginning, which is, you know, it sucks, but it's also like a blessing in disguise. You know, the, the guys I was with, uh, it was a great team af after that, you know? Um, and I feel like I helped them a lot and, uh, that was, it was awesome. So just went through the entire, you know, process all over again and, uh, yeah, ended up doing fine. What is that like as far as going through kind of twice for certain sections of as challenging as swimmer school challenging was physically because you're still doing like groundhogs day uh getting you know just run through the grinder every single day now it's instead of just the first two months now it just got extended into four months for the first two months uh doing the hardest part of swimmer school i'd say so that did wear on my body you know i was getting like it band syndrome and mm. a bunch of other little things that were popping up but you take enough Tylenol and Advil, your mind's still there. 
So that part, I mean, your body's going to, I'd say my body didn't handle it very well because um, I was just a stockier dude, never swam too much before. So as long as your mind's in it, your your body will follow. Just got to take care of it, you know, with foam rolling, what, whatever, what have you. What about um, the PJ pipeline? Uh, honestly, the hardest part, and I, I think uh, most PJs will agree, was uh, the paramedic program is ran by a university in New Mexico. It wasn't like a military ran program. So it was a bunch of, a bunch of guys like us, you know, type A uh, gorillas that are stuck in a classroom because it's a condensed paramedic course. Uh, usually it's, you know, two years uh, if you're civilian, but it's condensed in like seven or eight months for us and um, instructors that don't understand us that much. So guys were always getting in trouble or not used to studying, you know, all throughout the day and then all throughout the night. And uh, I think that was the hardest part, honestly, of it's kind of weird, but staying in it uh, mentally for the academics portion was uh, very difficult for a lot of us. Well, I mean, personally, I thought EMT school was very challenging enough, right? And now you're oh, bumping yeah. it up a level to paramedic. Yeah. In comparison, was it so much harder than EMT school as a swimmer? It was, uh, it was the same, same deal where it was just like hard and fast, you know, where you just had to, you have to do it or else you're not going to do it. You know, you're not going to do the job. So yeah. it was one of those like, you know, guys want to learn it, but it's still, it's still a roadblock in the pipeline. Like you have to get through that or else you're either going to get kicked out of the, the pipeline or you're going to continue. It's one of the two options. And you know, guys just had a hard time with that because you're don't have much time to to work out. Uh, it's it's not the same type of training, you know, that you do, you know, go to uh, free fall school, static line, dive school. All those are like things that you really want to learn and physically and mentally it it really uh, challenges uh, the guys. But this one was just just like EMT school is just it was kind of like mind numbing. It was good stuff. It's awesome stuff to learn, but it's ran by civilian instructors, not your own type of people. And guys uh, got in trouble a lot. Guys mentally had a hard time with the registry and just just how like how fast it was. It was it was difficult for a lot of guys to overcome. So, what kind of trouble were people getting into? Like, was that just out of like you know because you're in civilian world and you go out to the bar kind of situation or? Yeah, some of that, uh, you know, we like to joke around um, and mess around and like some of the instructors didn't like that. So say we do a, a joke, which is not as politically correct as uh, most people are used to, like, you know, civilian instructors don't like that sometimes and uh, would complain to the PJ cadre back at the PJ schoolhouse. So that would get guys in a lot of a lot of trouble and then of course the national registry was very difficult a lot of guys didn't pass that so hmm. uh, i'd say uh, i'd say those majority of um what happened yeah and and bar, and bar stuff too <laughs> yeah yeah um now i feel like you at least had the advantage of having done the whole emt national registry first would you say that helped out a lot for a paramedic yeah absolutely um i had the option of skipping that portion they had like a five-week uh kind of same deal going through EMT basic, but, uh, I just opted to stay because I was, I would be with the guys I went through my initial selection with. And I don't know, that was important for me to, 
to stick with those dudes, you know? Yeah. Not to mention personally how, how cram packed EMT school is. I remember finishing and like passing, passing the national registry and being like, whoof, I don't feel like, yeah, I know I passed, but I need to keep my nose in the books for a while and keep learning. Cause that was, yeah. that was packed. Like, I don't feel, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't feel like I could, I'm, I'm ready to go out in the, and provide medical care just yet. And yeah, I did take some time after that to, to keep, keep studying, oh, yeah. you know? So I think going yeah. through AMT school twice, it's like watching one of those like really, you know, action packed or just sorry, like dialogue pack and like plot packed movies. You're like, you watch it the second time. You're like, holy shit. I didn't even understand this movie the first time, you know, like, so I yep. would take that advantage. Yep. too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I went through EMT school twice as well, man. So I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm sure you learned packed. a lot like the second time yeah. too, you know? Yeah. I had the luxury of doing, I, I did a Knowles course um, and we go through woofer so wilderness first responder course and that like just blew my mind as well because I'd, I'd done a little ski yeah. patrolling um and that was great too like basically anytime i'm doing any kind of like new medical system right I, sometimes i'll go in with the mindset like a little unfortunately cocky i'm like oh, i probably know a lot of this as an emt i'm still registered yeah. um but then i go to ski patrol and i go through this wilderness first responder i'm like man it's amazing. Like I didn't know that. Like and like, or just yeah. like how to do certain things better and more efficiently. And you always pick something up, you know. Um, oh yeah. So that that's really cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. As far as like uh, the training taking a toll on your body, I think one of our our folks we have a Facebook group called the uh, RSM Training Circle. So folks are going PJ and basically anything Navy SEAL and and swimmer ask questions. And I think Jacob was like, "How are you such a stud? And how did your body not break down?" So yeah, like what, what were you doing? Cause you've gone through such long training. Now I've just found out that you kind of went through swimmer school partially twice. Yeah. How did you survive that? How do you survive at 25 years old going through the pipeline and like what, what kind of mitigating and mobility and stability drills would you do to prevent those injuries? Really came down to lacrosse balls, foam rollers, Advil <laughs> and guys using the, like the tiger tail to roll you out, you know, roll out your calves, which is painful just little things like that. And you just, you have to keep stretching, you know, especially if you get older, uh, you get more aches and pains that you can't just muscle through, you know, say if you're in your tw early twenties or something like that, you can just make it through. But once you get older, definitely the aches and pains, uh, linger. So if you're doing your, you know, kind of like swimmer school, I, I still do the same workouts, the, the whole, uh, core performance, push, pull, legs, core movement prep, if you stick with that stuff and just don't, you know, jump in in a workout and then don't worry about stretching, uh, it's probably going to take its toll eventually. So yeah, if you, if you do all those little things that you're supposed to do, that will definitely increase your, not just career longevity, but even more short term where you're just groundhogs day doing the same beat down of your body every day. Well, do you have kind of a, a routine go to prior to and post training? Um, that you would do on, you know, on your own as far as like you uh, know, movement or stability drill or something? Yeah, I'd say, uh, yeah, before I definitely foam roll before, then I do my movement prep, my plyometrics, uh, med ball work, and then I do some sort of power. So maybe like deadlifts, cleans, what have you. And then I do a couple circuits of four rounds each, push, pull, legs, core. Um, and then after... 
like you got to make sure that you're, you know, drinking water. And then I, again, foam roll again. And for like training programs, uh, definitely having something that you can, uh, I guess, let off some steam. I mean, everything comes down like you have to have your own routine, you know? And it's funny that you mentioned like the movie, The Edge. That was our thing in, in swimmer school is like we watch, I think, The Edge or Nacho Libre every night. <laughs> you know, no <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. But that was just the thing. We just watched like those two movies. I don't know. That was just our thing. So as long as you get in what, whatever routine, I think that's the key to like not just mentally, but physically uh, getting through it. Yeah, I, I think that it's a great motivating movie as far as like the yeah, again, like the the non quitting like survival mindset anthony hopkins talking up uh what's his name again alec baldwin yeah and alec baldwin is kind of in the panicky state of freaking out and then because this bear is like basically harassing and tormenting them yeah, and yeah just, <laughs> i love anthony hopkins just talking about like well i i always love this speech especially like as an outdoorsman of you know what is the main cause of death in the wild right and it's yeah shame and individuals yeah. die of shame instead of looking at like what is the next step to surviving and 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 finding a solution they're embarrassed because i mean everyone feels that way you're like how how could i put myself in this stupid situation on like a say a recreational sport um so they die of shame and i I always love that but then like when the bear's harassing them and it's like you know like psyching them out like i'm gonna kill the bear yeah say it say it louder i'm gonna kill the bear that's my favorite scene right there (laughs) you're gonna kill the bear and then like at the end like good because tomorrow we're going to kill the motherfucker. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's the scene. best part, man. <laughs> yeah. So uh, looking back on your journey, are you glad you did it in this cycle of starting with the Coast Guard and ending up in the Air Force? Or would you reverse it? How do you like how you how you did it? I, I like it the way I, I did it. Honestly, uh, I wouldn't change it like going pararescue first at all. Um, maybe just doing that my whole career. I think... Uh, I think honestly going swimmer was uh, kind of a, a natural like progression because you honestly, it's only, it's only helped me out as a, as a PJ, like the airmanship that you do, like the EMT work, all the ocean rescues, all the medevacs that you do. That's something that pararescue is good at, but being a swimmer, like I know whenever I brief or talk to air crew about how we're going to do uh, civil SAR missions here in Alaska is just transferred so, so easily. Um, even in overseas when we're deployed, just the airmanship is, you know, most, I'd say most PJs coming out of the pipeline, they're, they are not as confident talking to air crew or doing things uh, with air crew because they're two separate squadrons. And in the Coast Guard, everyone's in the same uh, same unit together, training all the time, doing uh, EP sorties, training sorties, everything. And uh, that has made my transition, I wouldn't say flawless, but definitely ease the transition of doing like civil search and rescue, training sorties uh, with uh, Air Force air crews or even jumps like, I wasn't used to dealing with C-130s too much and how, how, you know, operations go with them. That was, that was the one thing I didn't know too much about. And honestly, it's talking to the air crews with the C-130 is, is very similar or a C-17 whenever we're doing like a free fall or static line jump. It all, it all blends in. So I'm really happy with going from the Coast Guard to uh, like Air Force pararescue. Do you guys mostly free fall out of C-130s? 
Um, mostly, I'd say. Every once in a while, we do uh, C-17 jumps as well. What's that feeling like, you know, the whole free-falling? I've never done it personally. I've done it strapped to a dude, but, like, that's not the same. Yeah. 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 Uh, honestly, I was I was pretty scared at free-fall school. Uh, you do things from the helicopter, but it's different once the ramp opens down and you're 12,000 feet up. And uh, now it's funny how the military does things. Like, instead of, like, civilian skydiving, you're just jumping out with a small parachute, shorts, and a t-shirt and some goggles and you're like this is awesome and it's still awesome in the military but now you you have like a you know 60 pound ruck strapped to you you have a 40 pound parachute and uh it's still really fun but it's it's definitely uh nerve-wracking if you're not used to it um especially starting out <laughs> yeah uh, so i if i don't jump for a while and that ramp opens i still get the butterflies in my stomach every time a Every time that ramp opens up, <laughs> how often are those qualifications for, for jumping out? You know, I'm assuming you have standards. You got to do it a certain amount of times and frequently, right? How often do you do it? I'd say before this year with uh, COVID, uh, 2020, um, we had jumped probably a handful of times a month at the very least. Yeah. And I think every six months you need a few jumps at the minimum. That's cool. It's a whole different world. <laughs> yeah. I talked about on the podcast, I, I, the reason I became a swimmer is I first was looking into becoming a Canadian star tech. So oh, yeah. rescue technicians and they're cool because they do very similar to PJ. Actually, I'd say it's more comparable to PJ than a swimmer in the Coast Guard because they do yeah. the swimmer in the Coast Guard type stuff, but they also jump out of helos. They, I mean, they're so kind of far fetched that they'll pack in a helicopter into a plane, fly it out to the boonies of, I think, Antarctica area. Wait, Antarctica. No, that's the South. So the Arctic, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, they'll unpack the helo and then launch from there to do whatever search and rescue they have to do. Oh, yeah. Um, and they do like scuba diving and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it's it's really cool because you guys do so much more. You got to be proficient in so many more uh, realms. Is, is that mostly what you've done, though, as far as your PJ career is is serving in the civilian search and rescue? Or have you done any combat missions? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh... We about we deploy four months every twelve months or so. Um, so I uh, just finished my third third deployment with the unit. Yeah, the last one we did is a uh, couple handfuls of uh, uh, Kazavak missions. So it's uh, short for uh, casualty evacuation. So you land at a hot or cold LZ with a patient who's been blown up in an IED or a gunshot wound, whatever the situation is, and then you go in. You run, you pick them up from wherever the special operations ground medic is. Yeah, you take them into the helicopter, treat them, give them blood products, um, all the meds that accompany whatever their injuries are, and then you get them to a, a higher level of care. And it's it's a little quicker than civil missions because it's uh, everything's turn and burn. You have to honor that golden hour from the time of injury. You have to launch, get them get them back to damage control surgery, ideally within that first hour. So that's pretty much all that was, um, this last deployment. And where was this deployment? It was in uh, Somalia. Oh, wow. Wow. So we still have like a lot of operations in Somalia. I, I wasn't aware of this. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Yeah, a ton. <laughs> what's, <Still> the, there. <laughs> what's the current mission out there as far as like the, you know, the armed forces? What are we trying to accomplish there right now? Uh, I mean, pretty much everything's a proxy war. So we're just helping the local populace being able to fight their own wars eventually. So mm. 
pretty much everything's seems like it's the standard Green Beret mission, how we're kind of with the local military trying to teach them to fight their own war. What what is their own war? Who are they yeah, trying to, to work against or Yeah, pretty much uh, you know, Al Al Shabaab is the the bad guys in uh that part of Africa, just same as how ISIS or Al Qaeda is for uh Iraq or Afghanistan. Um pretty much trying to that's that's pretty much what it is. It's it's no new news. Like we're trying to help like uh the Afghan military being able to fight their own wars and we're helping them do that. So eventually we could just be hands off, say goodbye. And then you guys have to wait, you know, you guys are taking care of your own business. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just really curious. Cause Somalia, I, I don't know anything about, and you said Al Shabab is that? Yeah. Well, Al Shabab is like the name of the group. Kind of like ISIS is the name of that group. You know, yep. it's a, it's the same thing, just different, different faction, I guess. Yep. And what's kind of their, mission statement as far as like what why are they so hostile or what's their what's their deal you know is it associated with the pirates as well still that's all i know about somalia really you know oh yeah i mean they they do do piracy as well but it's just like the same as uh taliban or al-qaeda you know they have they have or have done grievances against the united states or partner nations so that's why in turn we're there to you know, disrupt them, uh, whatever we can to degrade their operations and get rid of them completely. Mm. Is it a religion, religion based organization as well? To some degree, I'm sure. But uh, I mean, in Somalia, everyone, uh, for the most part, has a certain uh, religious belief, you know, but it's it's more of like a mob base, like this mob controls this, this part of it. And they're fighting against another mob for more power. And it's just, it's just like little factions like that. Um, but this is like a bigger faction just trying to take over like an entire country mm. pretty much. Yeah. I guess that's the best way I could put it. <laughs> yeah. And what's, uh, what's been your experience interacting with the Somalian populace as far as, you know, their culture, their personalities? Oh, I mean, awesome. The, the ones that are on base or, I mean, they, they love Americans and everything like that. And then the, the partner forces we work with are, they're, they're awesome, man. They're, we work with the Kenyans a lot too. And those guys are freaking war fighters. It's uh mm. it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And they're honestly, Somalia is at least coastal Somalia is, is beautiful. If you like surfing or anything like that is some of the probably coolest surf spots I've ever seen flying up and down the coast, you know? <laughs> Is it is but, it uh, not over uh, polluted in the ocean or? Uh, I mean, probably by the cities like Mogadishu or something. There's like lots of trash or whatever uh, on the beach or something. But um, up and down the coast, north or south, the big cities are just 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 barren, beautiful uh, beaches. It, it would be a prime prime spot if you're a guy that just wanted to you know if you like to go surf in Nicaragua or something. That'd be a, a spot to go. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Again, what wh what would you say is a personality difference between Americans and the Somalians? And, you know, their thought process and just being over there. Oh man, uh, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, they're they've been doing their deal for years and years and years. I, I mean, it is what it is. Hopefully, we could uh, do something eventually to 
make it to where it's like a prosperous country again. I mean, it, it is a beautiful country. Um, there's just, they've just been at war for decades. So it's, yeah, I don't know how to answer that one. I don't, I don't know the end state goal for that. <laughs> mm. No, I was yeah. more curious, you know, like I traveled a little bit and had the, every place, every country has kind of their own culture and just yeah. going like Southeast Asia and like, say like Cambodia, you know, and like you know, Vietnam, Vietnam, you know, like I'd say, in general in comparison if you were to compare it to american kind of standards if you will like of course there's a little more poverty but it's i mean there it is still that more or less the, the communism system right so it's it's interesting to see how they are all community driven and i remember just like buying like a shirt in like one of these you know like these marketplaces yeah. and i mean just those interactions are always fun right like going to the marketplaces and stuff uh yeah trying to buy a shirt and you know, I was like, oh, do you have this in like a large or something? You know, I, I, I was getting proficient with the language and she goes like, oh, yeah, hold on. No, I don't. And she just like yells over <laughs> to someone else in a different shop, like a different shop down the road. She's like, you got a large? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. And she just brings it over. And then um, it's a small. <laughs> no, it was, it was a larger fit. Right. But it was kind of interesting. Like and then I, I think on top of that, she needed change for whatever bill I was giving. So she goes back to that same person. She's like, you got change? Like, so it was kind of interesting. Like, you know, there were different shop, different entities, but it yeah. was all that sense of community. Like, it didn't matter that much. Like, you know, like a sales sale or whatever. Like, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was again, that, that sense of culture and, and, and community. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's the same. Um, it's just, it's it's really different. It's, uh, it's a very, there's a lot of nomads there. So you'll see flying all over the country in the middle of nowhere. There's just a lot of tents everywhere um, throughout the places you wouldn't even think uh, people would live. There's like tons of tents. And then like Mogadishu really is a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, as far as the populace, uh, you know, it's a military deployment. So you don't get to interact with the populace that much. You interact with like you know, their military, um, quite a bit to help them fight their own wars. But, um, yeah, I would, if it, if war wasn't a thing over there, it'd be a cool place to visit and Mm -hmm. try to experience those things. You know, when you say they, they're just like tenting out what, like in desert lands or something kind of thing you you notice. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the middle of Somalia is kind of like, uh, Kind of like Midland, Texas, if you've ever been in the middle of Texas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's kind of like that. And then uh, every once in a while, you get these uh, these huge, uh, kind of looks like red rocks. You get these huge red sandstones that just shoot up these huge monoliths all over all over the country. And it's really cool. It'd be great rock climbing, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And what, are they, what do you think they're surviving on? Uh, I mean, there's... There's tons of food there. They got chickens. They, uh, Somalia has the biggest camel population on earth. Um, so, you know, they herd camels a lot. They eat them. Um, you know, there's tons of warthogs. There's baboons everywhere. Um, baboons. leopards. Yeah. Leopards, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Have you eaten uh camel? For some reason I've craved that for my entire existence. Like when I'm, whenever I'm hungry somewhere, I'm like, Man, I could really go for some camel. And I don't know why I've always said that, but it just sounds like it, it's like rough, tough, a little jerky and like hard to chew, but it sounds delicious to me. I don't know why. Like, have you had yeah, it? It's a little, it's, it's a little tough. Uh, our interpreter, she's super nice. Like when we're leaving, 
she, you know, cooked up a bunch of goats and a bunch of camel for us. And it was, it was, it was really good. Um, it is a little, it is a little bit tougher than most meats, but I don't know, the spice that they put on it makes up for any toughness. So it's, it was yeah. pretty good. Dude, a nice little like marinated. And then you, you like jerk, like make it kind of a jerk camel. It sounds good to me. I don't know why. I, I, I don't yeah. know why I say that. I have no experience, but yeah, it sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> just, just cause you've experienced the coast guard and the air force. One thing I, I started thinking about is like anything you hated about how like the coast guard ran things. Once you've found a different way in the air force, you're like, Oh, that was kind of stupid that we did it that way or vice versa. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say a thing about, uh, the air force that I don't like that the coast guard does well is actually like vertical surface. We use, we practice that a lot more, you know, duck cliffs or dummies on cliffs and stuff like that. I, I feel the coast guard definitely practices it a lot more, even though in Alaska we do cliff pickoffs in the, in the Alaska range or the Chugach mountains all the time. Um, I'd say the Coast Guard is is better in like the process of doing like a backwards L or J up the cliff, you know, stropping a survivor and everything like that. Um, it's very fluid in that motion. I think Coast Guard does do it better that way. Um, I'd say uh, hoisting to vessels, uh, definitely much better in the Coast Guard. Obviously it's bread and butter. Um, yeah, it's usually a, it's a little more difficult to explain to like uh, Air Force air crews how to, you know, approach different vessels and whatnot, and just the way they line up uh, versus how the Coast Guard lines up at a forty-five to vessels and crabs in. Um, so I, we obviously do water work a lot, a lot better. Um, for the Air Force, what I like about it a lot more than. What we did in the Coast Guard was how we utilize the the trail line, or we, we call it a tagline in the Air Force, and the same with like climbing community, use a tagline for stuff. Um, Coast Guard uses it always on the, the eye of the hoist hook, if you uh, you remember. Yeah. For any time you're, you're tagging a basket, a litter, whatever, it's always on the eye of the hoist hook, which doesn't offer any... Uh, any stability, you know. So in the Air Force, we attach it, attach it with a weak link on the foot of the litter or the the foot of the basket. So that way, you can actually uh, maneuver that device whichever way you want. You know, you, so you could swing the foot one way, swing the foot another way. You could help that. Um, you can help the litter get into the helicopter by swinging the, the foot of the litter away from the helicopter so the flight mech can pull it in easier. And we also do, um, we call it barrelman. So pretty much a PJ is attached to the litter as well. Um, just so that way it's, it's easier to get that patient into the helicopter as well. And then you're not delaying treatment at all. So once those two are in the helicopter, boom, you could Readminister CPR, you could start life-saving treatments while the other PJ on the ground is dealing with the tagline, cleaning it up, you know, whatever, whatever. So, Is there anything you learned as a PJ as well um, that you wish you knew as a, as a swimmer that potentially could have made that job a little easier or better? Yeah, we, we do have a lot of uh, 
like our final course in the PJ pipeline, you go through the PJ apprentice course and you go through a lot of mountain, like pretty much rock and ice, ice rope courses. So you learn how to do haul systems, mm. uh, how to access patients in different environments, whether it's confined space, you know, we learn how to, if there's an earthquake with rubble, you learn how to use lip bags and different things to get patients out of, you know, out from underneath the rubble, out of confined spaces. What's an example of a confined space for a rescue? I'd say, yeah, yeah I'd say maybe workers were in a uh, tunnel system, like under in a sewer system and something happens, an explosion, or there's uh, poisonous gases in there, you could use confined space rope techniques and access that space with a, like a foldable litter called a Skedco and then access that patient. And you have different, pretty much going down with the uh, SCBA, kind of like firefighters do, mm. just like a specialized, specialized SCBA system. And then access the patient, you got atmosphere monitors uh, to notify you if there's some sort of gas that is unfavorable. So if you need to change your filter system, I could go down the weeds, but, um, mm. just situations like that, you know, mm. what about, uh, swimmer schools that have been valuable as a PJ? I'd say ocean, ocean rescues definitely have made things easier in like Alaska, um, water rescues. I just, I just know what, what works and what doesn't PJs don't usually use the rescue basket that much. And that is a extremely valuable tool. <laughs> and so is, uh, the sling deployment where you just slip out of the rescue strap. That is a tool that the air force doesn't use that much or knows much about. And that's extremely valuable to get the helicopter away from like big waves or debris or anything like that. And get the rescuer into the situation a little bit quicker, I'd say. Um, so yeah, straps, baskets that, like I said, the airmanship with swimmers is much better than airmanship as a, that pararescue um, learns throughout the pipeline. Well, like we said in the beginning of the show, uh, we heard great things about like your, the fact that you had your water confidence abilities and, and how successful you were in the PJ pipeline. So that was cool to hear like, you know, the, the success of a swimmer as, as far as that realm of the pj pipeline going yeah a lot of our questions again were like how did you survive and like your your body breaking down so that's cool that you talked about you know deadlifting and stuff i was i was just listening to a, a, a joe rogan podcast and they were talking about deadlifting and especially as you get older the benefits of deadlifting and basically putting your body under heavy pressures heavy weights and the fact that it rebuilds the, the bones and it, it kind of teaches your body structure hey this guy likes to lift heavy things so let's create a system that's going to support that um and i think that does truly help with long-term like injury prevention oh, yeah. so that's cool to hear that you were doing that too i i just started trying to do that a little bit more myself like i've had some <laughs> like back injuries and stuff and trying to get back into the whole deadlifting thing is has been a process it's hard yeah 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 um but i think overall if you're careful you do your stretches and like you yeah oh in the long run if you're, if you're smart about it, that's definitely something that's valuable as you get older, those Olympic lifts. So, oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So what's your, uh, let's, let's end with what, you, what you're up to recently. I, I see you're an ice climber, which is really cool. How long have you been doing that? Those shenanigans for? Honestly, I, I learned most of this stuff, rock climbing, ice climbing when I switched over to pararescue, cause I just didn't have the, the gear, the, the tools or the knowledge, you know, you have to pay for courses if you're in the coast guard or on your own dime. Um, 
to go learn that stuff. And I don't know, I guess joining Pararescue is like a gateway to get all the, get all that gear for free and, <laughs> and, uh, and learn it. And you get ice tools for free as a, as a PJ. Oh yeah. There you go. So ice tools are ice picks for everyone. Listening. That's great. Yeah. 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 So yeah, we get issued all that and we has, I'm in the Alaska team. So there's tons of dudes who do it on their own. If you want to be truly good at something, you know, the guys will go do it on their own, uh, personal time to get good at it. I think that's how everything is. One of the PJs, uh, his name's Shane. He, he's an animal. You would, you would love him. He's just one of those dudes who'll run a marathon and then go do like Denali the next, the next week or something like that. He's just just an animal. But anyways, he taught me how to climb. And I just, a few years ago, got into it from there. Started doing, you know, harder climbs as I, you know, got more experience. Um, Are we talking rock or ice right now? Uh, both, okay. both. I'd, I'd say I'm a, a five, nine trad rock climber right now. So nothing tremendous, but uh, um, I, I do prefer ice more just cause it's, I find it aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is pretty, but I don't know. A cool story is uh, a buddy of mine. Um, he's a he was a PJ, and now he's going through like Air Force pilot training. Uh, he had he bought his own like a uh, uh, bush plane, uh, and he just put skis on it. And we went into uh, the Wrangles, just uh, into a remote location called the Chittistone uh, River, and it's just these huge canyons that come up on either side. And climbs that you'll see climbs everywhere that go for thousands of feet. And uh, it was really cool. And uh, it was like my second year of ice climbing. I'm like, oh, man, like all of these are definitely steep. They're, they're steep and committing climbs. I'm like, oh, gosh. And we all we approach with uh, like uh, AT ski boots. So we didn't have like actual climbing boots. So that was going to make it a more difficult one. You know, so we, we land and we stay at this public use cabin um, that was kind of next to this remote uh, airstrip. And then the next morning, this is all on like a weekend. So we try to just do this in a weekend. So we do a couple mile uh, uh, skin into uh, this one climb. And there's not much info about it except for uh, mem memoirs that are written by some Alaska legend, Carl Tobin. So we get to this climb. I just look at it. I'm like, this is going to, it's probably going to be pretty difficult. It was, it was scary. It was like a, the start of a thousand foot climb, but the first tier was about 200 feet, a full rope length. Cool. And I'm in a two buckle AT boot setup. I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, you don't have to do something, but sometimes you're there and you have to do it, you know? So, uh, and, and the, the ice was dripping wet and it was like zero degrees out too. So you can imagine everything was frozen. The ropes were frozen. Yeah, ended up getting up that that first uh, tier, and we ended up getting up to the second tier. And by that time, the the daylight was fading, so and we had to fly back the next day. So we ended up, uh, you know, repelling repelling the route and getting back to the his plane so he could set up to leave the next day. But that was just Alaska's full of stuff like that where you can just pick your adventure, and it's been it's been pretty fun. It <laughs> was a what, did you repel on like a V thread or? Uh, yeah, well, we actually had a, a nice, decent sized tree that we, uh, oh, nice. just left some, left some cord on and, uh, just wrapped off of that. Yeah. Oh, maybe we should yeah. have you on. I have, I run this other podcast personally, uh, the Wildertainment podcast. And 
yeah, we, we had, uh, some, some New Zealand mountaineers and they talked about falling. It was like at least 60 feet down an ice crevice in New Zealand. And, uh, but yeah, they were talking, we were talking about V threads as well. V threads for all those listening in and ice climbing terms. It's, it's when you drill a V in the ice and you, you know, like, you basically r- like feed a little rope through and then you'll repel off of that and you keep leaving the rope in the ice and you hope the ice will hold i've never done it i've never done it to like bail or anything uh but it sounds scary to me (laughs) it's it's uh, actually as strong as it gets i've bailed off a couple of climbs and uh as long as the ice is good if you drill it and it's not fracturing um pretty much you just make a, a v through the ice and thread a rope or some cord if you want to leave cord um and it could it could hold a, I think like eight kilonewtons, which is a lot of weight. I mean, one kilonewtons, two hundred pound dude, more or less. So it could hold a lot of weight. <laughs> I wouldn't nice. be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so scary. Yeah, it is scary and for sure. <laughs> if you feed the rope through directly, do you get? Are you able to pull that with without it freezing into the hole? Like that's that's okay. Like it works. Out. Yeah, I mean. It, that's why you use like skinnier ropes for ice climbing um, yeah. or alpine r- routes is uh, just so you could feed it through that V thread and then it won't free. I've had bigger ropes like uh, nine and a half uh, millimeter ropes get stuck in there mm-hmm. uh, on super wet ice. So that that's a pain in the butt. So you always run that chance, which is sometimes if you have cord to leave, leave cord. I know that's uh, not the best practice, but you know, it's your life. So you got to do what you got to do, you know, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll talk to you after the podcast and maybe we can have you on the, the wildertainment telling, telling some okay, entertaining, cool. we call it wilderness entertainment as a, as the show goes. So that, that's, Sweet. that's cool. But, uh, yeah, I, I just like the fact that you're doing ice climbing and that you've been through all this life journey because ice climbing, it just ties into the, it's, it's a very similar sport to the athletic, the military athleticism that you've, you've oh, yeah. been through. Ice climbing is, I always describe it as, it's basically roofing in the winter in Russia. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's more gritty than it is. Like it, it, As you go up in, in skill, it d- becomes a refined sport. But at first, it's oh, yeah. just basically your grittiness, how much you can fight through the suck, right? So like how, how much yeah. you can tolerate this terrible environment, the cold. And just hacking and just kind of surviving because yeah. you, you know your arms get tired the whole point is like there's nothing super difficult to pull on per se because you know you're always holding on to this ice axe which is a great handle but you're getting very tired over over a oh, short yeah. period of time you know just holding I, uh, those things i was in a valdez a week ago with my wife and uh you know it was like nine degrees but blowing like 50 miles an hour through keystone canyon there and uh I just did this, set up this top rope, just have fun with, with my wife um, and get some reps in. And I just see there's this huge climb called Bridal Veil, which is like a 600 foot uh, water ice five grade ice climb. And I just saw these two, these two dudes, probably tough as nails, just climbing it. And that those temps and those winds and on a top rope, I was like, man, this is debilitating, you know, and they're, they're going for it the entire way. It didn't bail off at all. I was like, man, they must be training for some big route in the Alaska range. That's awesome. But yeah. <laughs> power to them. <laughs> they always say like when you're, especially when you're ice climbing, multi-pitching. So, you you know, extending the length of a rope and continuing on, just for example, the 600 foot cliff, it's basically two, 
thought process, right? The guy that's climbing, so the guy actively leading and a potentially going to fall, he's scared. The other guy, oh yeah, belaying, holding the other end of the rope, he's cold. <laughs> you never win. <laughs> one guy's yeah. scared, one guy's cold. That's yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's very guy. true. Right on. Uh, hey, Ty, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Yeah, maybe yeah, we'll, we'll talk again soon on the, the World Entertainment Podcast. Thanks for sharing the story. No problem. Talk to you later. All right. Thank you so much once again, Ty Genzel, for coming on the show. That was a phenomenal story. Uh, actually, when we, we cut off our recording here, Ty was sharing some really gnarly wilderness out back in Alaska, ice climbing falls and just some gnarly adventures he's been on. So check out that story. I'll have him on the Wildertainment podcast and, and talking his pretty incredible uh, athletic achievement in the ice climbing field out in Alaska. So that's the Wildertainment podcast. We'll have him on. Please subscribe because once again, we'll cut the Wildertainment off of uh, Rescue Storm Mindset. So it won't be hosted under here anymore. Uh, it will only be its separate entity, if you will. So that's the Wildertainment podcast, Wilder and you can find that on apple podcast leave a rating review help that grow and you can find it under uh youtube we'll post them there and well i mean we always post them there so that's cool you get the visuals you get to see what ty genzel looks like so you can subscribe on youtube and do all that nonsense blah 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 spotify spotify is the shit anyway thanks again ty genzel uh rescue storm mindset once again we are coming out with the perfect form master class if you want to really get into the nitty gritty how to swim efficiently nobody knows really like the thing is with like these elite military programs like people go into it and not really knowing or having a swimming background and that's why this is this class is hopefully going to help you guys out a lot how you enter the water how your hand makes contact with the water how you extend your body how you reach how you pull how you kick the foot positioning the hip positioning your back positioning Basically everything that from head to toe, underwater, surface, freestyle stroke, and finning, which is crucial for military operators. So check that out. The Perfect Form Masterclass on RescueSwimmerMindset.com. That's RescueSwimmerMindset.com. Go check it out. Okay, and please leave a rate and review a rating five stars every time. And a review on the Apple Podcast. Help this grow so we can have Jocko Willing on the show. For the love of God, Jocko, come on the Rescue Swim Mindset and tell us some hardcore Navy SEAL stories. Also, uh, join the RSM circle on, or sorry, the RSM training circle on Facebook and, you know, hit us up about future podcast guests you would like us to have on. If you guys know a Navy SEAL, you can connect with us and put, him, put us in touch with us on there, or you can DM us on Instagram. But the RSM training circle is a great place for the community to collaborate and share content and, and information as they go through swimmer school, Navy SEALs, PJ pipeline. And uh, it's really, it's kind of cool because we've let it go and we've let you guys interact between each other. Keep it respectful. Keep it PC. Nah, keep it kind of PC, medium PC on the RSM training circle. Um, it's a professional knowledge sharing community. So yep. Talking training and whatnot. So check that on Facebook. All right. Enough with that. Wildertainment Podcast, RescueSwimmerMindset.com. That's all the advertisement you want to hear from me if you've, if you've listened this long. So, um, toodaloo. Merry Hanukkah. Jolly Christmas. Kwanzaa. What else is there? I don't know. And uh, yeah, Happy New Year coming up. 
Okie dokie. Let's hear your resolutions on the RSM training circle and tell us everything you are uh, going to do for the new year and go pack the gym or not. You've been in the gym because you listen to this podcast, but God, I hate the post new year gym donkeys. They're just donkeys. Oh my God, such donkeys. And then they just go and they chat. They chat with their friend that also doesn't train regularly. And they, they just go to the gym and they have a little conversation and they take up my COVID slot. And then I can't work out because they're having a The View conversation in the gym. I don't need you to go to the gym and have a The View type of conversation about politics or men or women. Just go and get it done. Be better. Rescue swimmer mindset. Goodbye. Vince, tuning out. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.